this is so rich today, <laughs> or at least it has been for me. I hope it'll be for you. But I want to give you four statements that will change your life in 2020. Four statements that will change your life. They're changing mine, and I want us to read them. At the end, I'll tell you who gave these statements. They're not original to me at all. I'll tell you who said them, but let's just first just look at these statements and see what the Bible has to say about them. Here's the first statement. Okay, four statements that will change your life in 2020 is this. What we dwell on in our minds will shape the way we live our lives. What you set your mind on shapes your character and your, your behavior. Read that again. What we dwell on, in other words, what we think on in our minds, will shape the way that we live our lives. So if you think about drugs all the time, you'll be a drug addict. If you think about teaching all the time, you'll be a teacher. If you think about uh, BMX, whatever, you'll be a BMX champion, all right? If you think about uh, a boyfriend all the time, eventually you have a boyfriend, might have five or six of them, all right? Whatever you think about is going to shape the way that you live your life. I think an atheist would, who was sitting in here listening to that statement would 120% agree with me. I think a Buddhist would agree with me. I think anybody of any persuasion would agree with the statement that whatever you put in your mind will affect the way you behave and the way you live your life. All right? So this is why meditation is so important. Christian meditation. The more you put God into your mind, the more godly you will become. The more of anything that you put in your mind, that's what you will become. So why, why meditate? Why think? So why concentrate so deeply on the things of God? Is there's only one reason. The only way you'll ever meditate is if you like what you think on. If, if you like. You think about what you like to think about. All right? And that's why the Bible says if you'll just taste and see that the Lord is good, Hey, you'll start thinking more about him because you will like God. You'll like what God has to offer you. And we talked about it last Sunday. There's so many benefits to God. When you add up all that God offers you compared to anything else, it just doesn't add up. And so why not God? Why not Jesus? Because he has way better things to offer. So that's why Psalms 1-2 um, says, those who delight on the law, uh, uh, those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and those who meditate on his law day and night. In other words, if you delight in God's word and his promises and his truth, you will think on those things. So we need to get to the place where we see God as something beneficial and worthwhile because if we do that, we see value in God, we'll start thinking about him, we'll start thinking about his word, and then our behavior starts changing and we live our lives differently. So to think on something, to meditate on something, is to open your heart to it, all right? I can tell you that one plus one equals two. But has one plus one equals two sunk down deep into your heart so that when you're at the grocery store and you take, take one egg out and you take another egg out, you say, oh, that is truly two. It went from my head 
down into my heart. I get it. All right. Two dollars are better than one dollar. Right. It makes sense. You meditate on it. You think it. But you've got to open your heart. So when you meditate, you think about anything. All you're doing is opening your heart to that thing. That's why the technical definition of yoga is to yoke, to concentrate. A yogi in here would completely agree with what I'm telling you. When you concentrate on something, you get yoked to it. So be careful with yoga because it has its roots in Hinduism and you're yoking yourself to something that you don't want to be yoked to. But the truth of the matter is to concentrate on something is in fact to be yoked to it. So open your heart to the Lord and become yoked to him who loves you, who wants to treat you well, who wants to prosper you, who wants you to succeed and who wants to give you eternal life forever. Open your heart to him. Meditate on him. And you'll be yoked to him. All right, so here's some thoughts. Again, we're saying, whatever you dwell on, that's how you're going to live your life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. All right, that comes from the Bible. I believe it's Proverbs 27, 5 or 3, I think, in the King James Version. But Romans 8, 5 through 8 says this. Those who live according to the flesh. What's the flesh? Well, really easily it's your feelings. If you live according to the way you feel every morning, so if I get up in the morning, I don't I gotta go to work tomorrow, and I don't feel like going to work, am I gonna live according to my flesh or am I gonna live in tune with a higher a higher law, the law of responsibility? All right? If I got up and did everything that I felt like every morning, I would be a mess. I don't go by the flesh. It says live according to the flesh have set on what the flesh desires so if you just go by your whims whatever you feel like doing all right those who live according to the flesh they're going to live according to their own desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit the holy spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires how does this work? Well, I say, God, I get up in the morning, I say, God, what do you want this morning? What do you want for my life? Who can tell me how I can find out what God wants for my life? Anybody? What's that? Ask him. The Bible. It's really easy. Read your Bible and you'll figure out what God desires for your life. And then once you read it, you say, aha, the the, the gospel wants me to be humble. Then you take your mind. And you say, I'm going to think about humility today. I am going to practice humility today. And you set your mind on what the spirit desires. Really easy stuff. Simple, maybe not easy. The mind governed by the flesh is death. That's why addicts die quicker deaths. That's why thrill seekers die quicker deaths because they have their mind on what they desire their flesh desires and they get themselves into accidents i was watching a youtube video yesterday of these uh longboarders and they're flying down they're on a skateboard a longboard they're squatted down to get aerodynamic and once they get going about 80 miles an hour the least little bit of fishtailing 
gets pretty hard to manage. And we were seeing these guys wipe out and slide for feet. And one guy head on collision with a car. I'll tell you what, if you're into thrill seeking, you're going by your feelings, by what you want, your flesh wants, you're not going to live a very long life. That's why it says the mind governed by the flesh or the feelings is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Going back to this, this concept of yoga, if you concentrate, you are going to be governed by something. Whatever you're concentrating on is going to govern you. So if you are concentrating on your past failures, it is going to govern you. But if you concentrate on the hope that Jesus gives you, it is going to govern you, and it's going to give you life and peace. Isn't that amazing? Again, whatever we dwell with on our mind shapes the way that we live our lives. The mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor does it do so. So if you are letting your feelings rule your life, you can't submit to God. No wonder it's so hard to, go, to follow God. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it so hard to follow God? Why can't I ever think about God? Why can't I love God? It's because you've allowed your life to be ruled, governed by your feelings. It's time to get up tomorrow morning and say, I'm not going to let my feelings rule me anymore. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to start focusing in on what the Spirit desires by reading my Bible, and it is going to start ruling me, and as a result, I'm going to have life and peace. That's why Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. Let's stop and think about this. Whatever is true. Do you want to live a lie, or do you want to live the truth? You know, The truth is God loves you. The lie is God doesn't love you, and he's angry with you. Which of those two do you want to live by? I want to live by the truth. God loves me, and I live a different life when I feel loved versus when I feel rejected. Whatever's noble, God's called you a child of God. You need to start walking around in the nobility of God and not in your past failures. Walk around as a child of God. Think on the nobility of who you are in Christ. That's going to change you. Whatever is right, okay? Whatever is right, you know what? Whatever is just. Some of us are in work situations where a boss isn't acting or treating us justly, or we see our boss treating someone else unjustly or unjustly. That bothers us. We like what's right. Treat people right. We ourselves need to do the same thing. Dwell on what's right. Whatever is pure, all right? What is pure? Well, I want something that's completely the real deal. I don't want something that's hypocritical, that's one way one day and then in church and then I get to the workplace and I act differently. I want to be pure. I want to be singular in the way I am and who I am. So I'm going to dwell on being that that singular person, that pure person. No no a mixture of falseness and and fakiness. I want to be the real deal. Have you ever been in a community where people are real snooty and they treat you, you know, if you're not dressed a certain way, they kind of push you off, they reject you? None of us like that kind of treatment. We shouldn't be that way either. We want to be pure. We want to be the real deal. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Um, sometimes at work when people retire, you're given the chance to write something good about them. And I always start my comments about that person as, 
you know what I admire about you, question mark, and then I start writing all the things that I admire about that person. We need to look at each other with admiration. Look at the positive side. Look at that giftedness. Look at that uh, amazing, sensitive heart. Look at that loving spirit. Look at what's admirable. Think on those things. But here it goes on. It says, if there's in all of these things, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about the good and stop thinking about the bad. Just stop it. Think about the good. And I want to key on a certain word here. Uh, the word excellent in, uh, in the, the Greek really is the word virtue. Virtue, a word that we don't use much at all or even don't even really think about too much. But we're going to key in on this word just a little bit. Um, in fact, um, let's look at, uh, if, if you have an amplified version, I don't know if you do, do or don't, but listen to this. In Philippians 4.8, the amplified classic version says, Think and weigh and take into account these things. In other words, fix your mind on them. Fix your mind. You have the power to fix your mind on Jesus if you so desire. He's given you that capability and, and that ability to focus your mind, fix your mind on Jesus. In the pure amplified version, it says to center your mind on them and to implant them in your heart. And that's what that's what concentration or meditation does is it takes it from your head and implants it into your heart so that it can't be taken away from you. When God gives you truth, you need to suck in that truth, cover it over, and hide it in your heart so that it can't be taken away from you, so it become become fruitful. But let's let's think about this word virtue, okay? Let's think about this word virtue. In 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through, 3 through 4, we're going to read this word, this verse, these set of verses in in order. And then I'm going to read them backwards, okay? When I read them backwards, they'll make even more sense. His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. How many of us, don't raise your hand, but I assume all of us, wants a godly life? You want it. You, you may not want to do what it takes to get there, but at the end of the day, you'd actually like a godly life, okay? Here it is. It tells you. He's given us everything that we need for a godly life. What? Through our knowledge of him. We were talking about meditation, thinking, knowledge, your intellect, your brain power. God's given you a lot of brain power. We need to use it to exercise. Through our knowledge of who? Of God, of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, that word goodness in the Greek is virtue. It's the same word that we're reading about in Philippians 4.8. Virtue, excellence. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, and we'll talk about that in a second, the divine nature, the divine nature. You can participate in God's very own divine nature. What would that look like? God wants you to be able to pray for people and see them get healed. That's a divine nature. God has given you uh, the ability to pray for people and have their minds restored, maybe from too much drug use, maybe too much medication, maybe depression. He wants you to participate in his divine nature by leading them from a knowledge of the world into a knowledge of God. 
all right, by escaping the corruption of this world through evil, by evil desires. So let's read this backwards and look at this. Do you want to be freed from evil desires? Imagine we all do. We'd love to be freed from evil desires. Would you like to participate in God's divine nature? I do. Would you like to have God's precious promises available to you? Well, it says that through these or through them, that will happen. What is through them? What is it referring to? We'll go back to the previous sentence. It's through his glory and through virtue. These two things will allow you to participate in his divine nature, to escape evil, de evil desires, and to have his precious promises. Let me tell you what. You want God's virtue. You want God's virtue. So let's, let's take our, the, the, the mental capabilities that we have and focus in on this word virtue and see what it means. First of all, virtue, it's sourced from heaven. It's a heavenly thing. So you can't go out and read about it in a book and get it that way. You can't get it from talking to a wise person. Virtue comes directly from heaven. And it's another word for it is excellence. All right? And it has to do, listen to this, it has to do with perfection. Virtuousness has to do with being perfect. All right? And as soon as we hear the word perfect, the perfectionists in this room get really jazzed and excited, and the non-perfectionists of us say, ugh, I don't want any, any part of that because that just makes me feel bad. All right? But hear me out. Have you ever heard the word virtuoso? It's like a child prodigy who gets up at a piano and at age three is already playing classical music, and by age five, they're playing with perfection, and by the age eight and ten, they're playing in symphonies. That's the perfection that I'm talking about. It's a giftedness that when you do that thing, you do it to near perfection. There's some teachers that they, they teach almost perfectly. Anytime they have a classroom, this teacher can somehow get, let's say you're a special ed teacher, all right, you have special education students, and you're able somehow to calm those students down and teach them to near perfection. That's virtue. That's virtue. Or maybe you're a musician, as I've shown an example, and every time you play your instrument, you play it to almost near perfection. That's virtue. Or you're an athlete, and every time you play whatever sport you play, you play it to near perfection. That's virtue. It's just in you. You can't help but do it almost perfectly every single time. God wants to place virtue in our lives, that perfection the Bible says, be perfect because I am perfect. What he's saying is, God is the giver of all good gifts. He does all things perfect. He wants you to do things perfectly as well. That's virtue. He wants it to flow out of you, to, to spring up out of you like a fountain would. And everywhere you go, when you do, when you work in the giftedness of God, you do it with perfection. And people are shocked and amazed at what, what you do and how well you do it. That's virtue. And it's through virtue that you're going to get God's promises. You're going to be freed from evil desires. You're going to participate in God's own divine nature. Some of you are going to be given the gift of healing. You're going to be able to pray for people. And virtue, the Bible says this, in fact, healing power came out of Jesus. Some versions say virtue flowed from Jesus healing power goodness flowed out of them 
Some of you guys have the gift of encouragement. And when you speak to somebody and encourage them, the virtue of God flows out of you, and they, those people remain encouraged because you gave an encouraging word. There's all kinds of gifts that God wants to give you. He wants those things to flow out of you. But let's keep reading here. Let's keep thinking about what this, this virtue means. Whenever you do this thing, you are endowed with divine giftedness. You become worthy of honor. <laughs> I mean, people look at you. I mean, whenever I see somebody do an athletic feat, you know, a football, a receiver goes out, he catches it in the end zone, he drags both feet while he's in the air, inbounds and pulls in the ball. What do you do? You scream at that guy. You yell at him. You're like, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. When you're endowed with giftedness, it's, it's like you aren't worthy of honor, but the giver of that gift is worthy of honor because it's amazing, it's powerful. Now, instead of being born with this perfection, because there's talents, I've referred to many of, of these things as talents, but let me tell you what, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit gets in you. You become virtuous. That's how you grow in the goodness of God, in the virtue of God, is you grow through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, and you're anointed by the Spirit to do things that you could have never done otherwise. And that's what you, some of you see in your lives going on right now. I'm getting closer to God, and I'm starting to see that I'm able to do things that I wasn't able to do before. I'm able to keep my mind under control in ways that I was never able to do before. Think of some of the stress that you guys are going through right now in your personal lives. The anointing power of the Holy Spirit is keeping you calm, able, and stable through what you're going through right now. The virtue of God. Praise God. So we need to develop virtues, godly attributes, characteristic, love, faith, hope, joy. We need to develop those virtues and let the Holy Spirit flow through us. We're going to have an enriched life if we do that. So again, in Matthew 5.48, be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. And what God is saying, he's saying, now I'm going to let you be perfect. I'm enabling you to be perfect in certain areas of your life because I myself am perfect and my perfection is flowing through you. Here's the second statement, though. That's statement number one. Let me read number one one more time. Whatever we dwell on in our minds will shape the way that we live our lives. What you set your mind on shapes your character and behavior. If you meditate on virtue, God will let virtue begin to flow through you. Think on it. Think on the perfections of God, and he's going to start perfecting you as well. But here's, here's the statement number two. Sin can only be cut off at its root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. Let me stop that. It might just be words, but let's let that sink in. You want to be free from sin? Start thinking about the love of God for your life, for who you are. Expose yourself to the love of God, and he's going to start helping you overcome your sins. What, what do we do instead? Here's the problem. Here's what we do instead. We say, God, I've got to get my sin under control before I come into your love. And God says, no, I want you to come just like you are into my presence, as bad as you think you are, you are and as bad as you are, I want you to come in and let me love you just like you are, just like you are. You got anger issues? Bring your anger with you. You got lust issues, 
bring your lust with you. You got distraction issues, bring your distractions with you. Bring your whole self just as you are and expose yourself to the love of God and his love is going to melt away that sin in your life. Know this. Well, 1 John 4, 17, 16 and 17 says, and so we know and we rely the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Listen to that. Did you know you can die and go to heaven and stand confidently before God? How? Because you remained in his love. And his love melted away all your fears. He melted away all your sin. Took care of everything. How? Because you lived in his love. 1 John 2.28 says almost the same thing. And now, dear children, continue in him. Continue what? In God's love. Just stay in his love. Walk into the room of his love, shut the door and say, I'm never coming out again. No matter if I do wrong or I do right, I'm in God's love. I accept his love for me, even though I know I don't deserve it. Continue him so that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. There's several other thoughts. Those are some thoughts on love. But Matthew 121, as we begin to understand Jesus' purpose for coming to the world, we, we lose our fear of God. We totally lose our fear. Listen to this. In, in, in a bad sense, we lose the bad kind of fear for God. Matthew 121, um, it's said of Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. Why did Jesus come? He came to save you from your sins, not to make you die in your sins. He came to save you from them. Look at Matthew 9, 13. It says, but go and learn what this means. I deserve, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Who here is a sinner? <laughs> Every single one of us is a sinner. We're the ones God has called, come to call. He's looking for us. He's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for imperfect people. Matthew 11, uh, yeah, 11, 19 the Son of Man was called a friend of sinners. He's your friend. He's my friend. Matthew 26, 28, it says, uh, uh, this is the blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus come to do? He came to forgive our sins, to forgive them. What do we do? We hide because of our sins, but we need to come out exposed and say, here's my sin. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you came for the very purpose to forgive that sin of mine. So I'm coming, exposing all who I am to your love. John 129. Uh, this is uh, John saw Jesus come toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God, this is John the Baptist, who takes away the sin of the world. What does he want to do? He wants you to come with your sin holding it out, and he'll take it away from you so that you don't have it anymore. He'll remove it from your life. Just expose it to him. Give it to him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. Out of love, he did not send his, world into the sun, his, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. God isn't condemning you right now. In fact, he says, 
uh, anyone who believes on him will not be condemned. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. So with that thought in mind, expose yourself to his love and he'll take that sin. In Romans 8, um, 1 through 4, and I won't read the whole thing here, but it says he condemned. It's in verse 3. He says he condemned sin in flesh. Did you get that? He didn't condemn you. He condemned the sin in you. It's like a, it's like a, a chemotherapy. It zaps, theoretically. It zaps the cancer without zapping the organ. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to zap the sin in, in you without hurting you. He wants to save you. So let's read this one more time. Sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of God. That's how you can get rid of sin. So Jesus came to save us from our sin, not to condemn us. And the closer we get to God's love, the freer we are from our own sin. So get closer to God and closer to God and closer to God. And as you do, you'll shed more and more and more junk. Don't try to get rid of that junk by yourself. Don't try harder. It won't work. Only Jesus saves us from our junk. We can't save ourselves. All right, here's the third statement. I'm sorry for this microphone. Sin grows when we think we deserve something from God or life. Sin grows when we th think we deserve something from God or from life. Now, there's this word, entitlement. Have you ever heard that word before? Entitlement? What is entitlement? It's the belief that you have the right to something. Entitlement is the belief that you have the right to something. One of the most freeing declarations you can ever make over yourself in this life is, no one owes me anything. No one owes me anything. To believe anything other than that, that someone does owe you, if you think somebody owes you something, what you've essentially done is you've opened a cage, you've walked in, you've closed the cage, you've locked it, and you've thrown the key out. You are completely trapped when you think someone owes you something. The reality in life is no one owes you anything, and you need to live that way. And you walk around every day, no one owes me anything. I remember once... Tina and I almost never argue, but we were arguing about something. I can't even remember what it was. And I remember driving, and these thoughts came into my mind. She owes me. <laughs> I was mad. She owes me. And I stopped myself. I didn't stop the car. I just stopped myself. And I said, you know what? No, she doesn't owe me anything. She doesn't owe me anything. And we need to get into that mindset. You know what? I'm going forward, and not a soul is ever going to owe me a single thing. I'm going forward, and I'm going forward fast. I'm not going to be stopped. I'm not going to be held back anymore. So when we start demanding and requiring and saying I deserve something, you know what? You get obsessed whenever that happens. You get imbalanced. You get unforgiving. You become resentful. You become bitter, angry, and vengeful. Whenever you think somebody owes you something. So it's time for us to say, and, and the statement, sin grows when you think you deserve something from God or something from someone else.
I tell you this morning in 2020, release all debts. Release all debts. Somebody owes you an apology, release them. Somebody owes you a promotion at work, release them. The government doesn't owe you any income, doesn't owe you any security, doesn't owe you any health care, doesn't owe you a provider, doesn't owe you anything. Get away from it. Be unentitled in this life and let God start taking care of you. Because then what you're doing, when somebody owes you something, you're latching onto them instead of latching onto God. This attitude of saying that nobody owes me anything releases a high degree of contribution, value, innovation. See, when you're trapped in that cage of, in, of somebody being indebted to you, you can't be creative anymore because all you're doing is focused on what people owe you and you can't turn around and contribute back into society because you're so focused on yourself, you're not focused on what you can be flowing out into other people's lives. It produces, it gives you productivity. As soon as you're entitled, it shuts the door in your face to progress and advancement, and it labels you as disabled. Stop being disabled. Disabled is a, is a figment of your imagination. If you don't have two legs, you still have two arms. You still have two eyes. You still have your mouth. You still have your mind. You still have your ears. Blind people are not disabled. You are not disabled. Stand up and start being whoever God's called you to be with the faculties that you have. No one owes you anything. Now, there's a challenge with Christians in this as well. They think, if I pray, if I have faith, God owes me an answer. That's entitlement as well. God only gives because he loves and he's going to just answer your prayer. But just because you pray and just because you have faith doesn't entitle you to anything. No one owes me anything. Here's the fourth and last statement that I find life-changing. On the flip side, godliness grows when we remember that we are, in fact, debtors to God throughout our life. No one owes me anything, but you know what? I owe something back to God. And here in Romans 13, 8, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You see, we are indebted to God and to our fellow man, or call it society. We are indebted to love. We, we have a debt to fulfill, to, to keep, and it's to love. Romans 13.10 tells us the same thing. Do not harm, uh, love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, the law is the debt that I owe. I owe love to every single person I come into contact with. And I owe love, God, love back to God. Do not withhold, in Proverbs 3.27, it says, Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to act. So if you have the power to smile at somebody, then smile at somebody. You know, you'll find when you smile at somebody, usually they'll smile back. But even if they don't, it's a debt that you have to smile at somebody, to show them love, to encourage them, to tell them about Jesus, <laughs> to tell them about hope, to tell them about joy, to tell them about peace. 
you're indebted. I'm indebted to do these things, to show love. And so this law is your obligation for what Jesus did to you. He's given you love. You're a cup, and he's poured love into your cup. Now go pour that love out on someone else. All right? And if there's someone in your life, which I guarantee you is, that's unlovable, that you can't stand, that's hurt you, that's done something wrong to you, all right? Don't try to love that person. Just receive more love from God. Receive more love. Get more love. And when your cup is full, you'll finally be able to love the person who you have a challenge loving. But we're still indebted to love because God loved us first. You know, there's very few things you can do wrong when you're loving somebody. Very, you, in fact, I, I would say when you're loving somebody, it's impossible to do wrong. When you're truly loved, loving, showing love to somebody, there is no sin in your life. You're not doing anything that would make God upset. You're loving. And that's why the Bible says the law is summed up in this one, one thing, love God and love people. The law is really easy, just love. Because when you love, you're not doing anything wrong. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. We're indebted to God. We don't belong to ourselves. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies. Show love with every faculty that you have. With a smile, just looking at people. Have you ever noticed if there's somebody that you don't like, you tend to not look at them? Go ahead and look at that person. Give them some eye contact. Show them that there's a connection there. All right? Speak to them. Show love because we're not our own. We owe God a lot. And all we owe God is... He says, here's your only payment. Just love me and love people. That's a pretty easy payment to pay, isn't it? It should be a lot more than that. So here's, here's the last thought, and I've expressed this before. I'm 50 years old. God has picked me up more times than I can count. I've fallen over and over. I remember there's this one thing in my 18, 19, 20, 21 years of age I kept falling over and over. When I say falling, like messing up, doing the same thing wrong. And then I'd pray, God, forgive me. Then I'd do it over again, three or four or five times a day, over and over and over and over again. Finally, after the hundred, who knows, thousandth time, God picked me up, and I finally stood up, and I didn't fall down anymore. All right? And I can think, that's just one thing. I can think of hundreds of other things where the same thing I felt. And God, here's God patiently. Okay, it's okay. Get back up again. And then I'd fall and get back up again. And after 50 years, I want God to get an investment out of me. He's poured into me. Now I want to be something for him so that he gets all the effort, all the time, all the emotion that he's put into me. I want to be able to give back to him. Don't you? Don't you, think that's, don't you think that's worthy of God? That he's put so much into us that we should be able to give him a dividend, a return back on his investment in us. So let's look at these four statements. What we dwell on in our minds will shape the way that we live our lives. 
What you set your mind on shapes your character and your behavior. That's number one. Number two, and these are on the back of your sheet, all right? Sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. Number three, sin grows when we think we deserve something from God or life. And then fourthly, godliness grows when we remember we are debtors to God throughout life. Four amazing statements. They were made by this man named Tim Keller. If you have version on your phone, there's a devotion plan called, oh, I don't have it up here, but it's written on your sheets, um, something about Romans 8. I encourage you guys to go through. It's like a four or five, maybe six-day devotional plan. It is, it's powerful, absolutely powerful. But in day two, he makes those four statements, and those have been a huge blessing to me. Let's bow our heads, if you would.